Okay, John chapter 16. Let's go there for just a few minutes. I'll just in a very brief introduction remind you that in chapters 14, 15, and 16, that Jesus is having a very, very intimate conversation with his disciples. Some of the last things that he would say, some of the last things that he would share with them, we find in these, so that you kind of have to get in the context of this intimate conversation. These are not high and lofty things that we often make them. Everything that Jesus was saying is very practical. Last night when I was teaching in Leveland at the Bible study, I was teaching from Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And they began, they said some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say the prophet. They gave multiple answers. And I told them, I said, anytime you ask a religious world who Jesus is, every answer possible is going to come because the the answers will be very divided. But Jesus then asked this very profound question. Ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter very wisely said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And in that moment, something happened. Distinct moment, something happened. Because the next words out of Jesus' mouth says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. And I shared with him last night, I want you to understand, why was he blessed? What was it that would prompt Jesus to say, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona? And then to say these next extremely powerful and real words. He said, Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. That was revealed to you by my Father. And he says, you are Peter, Petros, stone. But upon this rock, Petros, bedrock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom so that you could bind and loose according to what I want you to do. And we have elevated in that story a teaching. And if if you come from a Catholic background... Peter was elevated in that. We're seeing a lot of the result of that as the Pope is visiting the United States right now. We're seeing the result of the possibility that what Jesus was meaning was that, Peter, upon you I'm going to build my church and and those who replace you as following vicars of the church. That doesn't resonate with me very well. But the evangelical world has said that what Jesus was talking about was that he was talking about himself, that upon himself they would build the church. Well, I guess as an evangelical Protestant, that doesn't set very well with me because Jesus didn't say to Peter, my goodness, you got the right answer. Way to go, Peter. I don't, you know, way to go. You came up with the right answer because what fascinated Jesus wasn't that he gave a right answer. It's how he got the right answer. And I would offer to you tonight even to consider the possibility, though you may, if you walk away again, as I told the group last night, I'm not asking you to agree. You may totally disagree with what I'm saying and what I'm teaching. But I believe the bedrock that when Jesus was looking at Peter, but referring to something beyond Peter that was bedrock, he said the bedrock that the church is going to be built on is not Peter, it's not me, I'm the cornerstone, but the bedrock upon which I'm going to build the church is revelation. That the people of the the church will be a people of revelation. And I want to tell you, if we get that, We recognize that Jesus was telling them something extremely practical. This wasn't this high and lofty statement. Jesus was saying the way the church is going to work, 
The way the church is going to be able to march on the gates of hell. The way the church is going to be able to have the keys of the kingdom and know what to loose and bind is because there are going to be a people of revelation who will see and understand truth as I continue to unveil it. It was designed to be a practical lesson to tell us how the church was designed to work according to revelation. You know, we see it very clearly in Ephesians chapter 1 when Paul begins to pray this very high apostolic prayer in about verse 16 when he says, I pray that you would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that these things of God you'll be able to see and recognize. Paul, in Galatians chapter 1, in about verse 8 or 9 or 10 or somewhere in there, he says, he's talking to this church in Galatia that he's writing this letter. He says, I want to tell you, I'm not preaching to you of the things of men. Because he says, man did not teach me these things. I did not learn these things at the hands of men. I learned them by the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you that we, you and I were designed to understand that we're to be a people of revelation. So that we would understand the practical reality of that. So that we would know as a church what the foundation was, what the bedrock of our abilities would be. And that we would be, that we would become a people who pursue revelation. Again, I know that strikes us differently than some maybe what we have been taught in the past. But Jesus was telling them something amazingly practical, amazingly real, so that they would understand how the church was designed to work, function, and be able to be powerful because we're people of revelation. This teaching that he was doing in 14 and 15 and 16 was all designed to bring us a very, very practical reality of the Christian life and what church together, corporate church, was supposed to be like. So I can't really begin in verse 16 like I'd like to. I need to back up because you can't really separate these. I need to back up to 13 for just a second, where Jesus says, How be it when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, he shall speak, and he will show you the things to come. He'll glorify me. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore said I that he shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. So recognizing that that is the backdrop for where we're fixing to go. Don't try to understand these separated. You can't. They won't, it won't unfold correctly. Beginning with now with verse 16. A little while and you shall not see me. And again a little while. And you shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of the disciples among themselves, What is this that he, that he says unto us? A little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. We cannot tell what he says. I'll stop right there for just a second. Jesus is telling them, he's introducing them to something, this reality of what is about to occur. He's saying, very soon, there's going to come a day when you can't see me anymore. Well, that they could process. But how strange it would be when he comes back immediately, he says, but just a little more time, and you will be able to see me because I go to the Father. What was Jesus telling them? He was telling them in, in, in a strange way. He said, I'm fixing to be crucified and you're not going to see me. But a few days later, upon my resurrection, you're going to see me again. 
But he says you, that can't happen between one and the other. The reason that can, that can actually happen is because in the middle, I'm going to my father. What's he going to his father to do? What is the announcement that, he, what, that he's going to his father to say? That the price has been paid. That which you have asked has been committed. That which you required has been done. One of the reasons that we teach here the difference between body, soul, and spirit, clearly defining a body as it's separated from our soul, as it's separated from our spirit, reason that we have to draw that distinction is because there's so many things in the Bible that won't make sense if we don't know the difference that we are a trichotomous being made in the image of a trichotomous God. Because Jesus said some powerful things in that moment that he was crucified and the things that happened immediately thereafter. There were some powerful things that we get to learn from that passage. What happened to Jesus's body? Where did it go? When they took it down off the cross, where did his body go? It went to the tomb. Where did his spirit go? It says very clearly, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It went to the Father. Where did his soul go? What did he say to the thief? Today you will be with me in paradise. Well, remember, paradise is an English word. If you want to use the Hebrew word, it's the word Sheol. If you want to use the Greek word, it's the word Hades. So Jesus is saying, today you're going to be with me in Hades. Why did he need to go to Hades? Because according to the scripture, that's where the Old Testament saints were. Why were they still in Hades, a place of death? That's not hell, by the way. That's Hades, a place of death. Why were they there? Make it logical. Make it reasonable. Why would they be there? Yeah, there was no blood yet to cover their sin. So in Jesus at the crucifixion, what could he say to those now who had been waiting in Hades? Because all of them had been standing there with a promissory note saying, Someday a price will be paid so that you will be able to, to leave here. It's like if, if I gave Randy a check for $10,000. How much is that check worth? Whatever's in the bank account. If there's $10,000 in there, it's worth $10,000. But if, it's worth, if I don't have any money in that bank account, what's that check worth? Whatever you could turn it into is a notepad. That's it. Unless Randy's standing there with that check, waiting on a deposit to be made, so once that deposit was made, he can cash the check. What did Jesus go to Hades to tell those Old Testament saints? Cash the check. The price has been paid. The deposit has been made. And Ephesians says he took those who had been held captive there. He took them captive and took them to the third heaven. You see, Jesus... Was, t was saying, I have to go to my father. There's some things that have to happen between my death and between my resurrection. He was introducing them to that reality. And he's saying, you're going to not see me. And then a few days later, you're going to see me. And they're saying, what in the world is he talking about? I can imagine their confusion because it, it even sounds confusing to us if we didn't have the rest of the story. Let's go on a little further. Verse 19, now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him. So he said unto them, do you inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while and you shall not see me? And again, a little while you shall see me. Verily, verily, I say unto you that you shall weep and lament. What's he talking about? When you see me crucified, when you see me die, you're going to weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. That which is causing you great pain, when the world sees me crucified, they're going to be joyful. And that's exactly, we understand what happened. And then it says, and you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. It doesn't say it will become joy. It's going to, it says it's going to be turned into joy. It's going to be transformed into joy. Your sorrow, because you, you saw me die, is going to be turned to joy because you're going to see me alive. 
I want to tell you the sadness of the Christian church today is that we teach half of that story. We teach the half that says Jesus is going to die. And by that blood and by the death of Jesus, he's going to provide the atonement so that someday, again, we can leave this earth and that we can go to heaven. But the greatness of this story is Jesus says it's going to be turned to joy because you're going to see me alive again. I'm going to redeem you by my blood, but I'm going to regenerate you. I'm going to bring you back to life. I'm going to bring you back to man's normal because I'm coming back to life so that I can come and live in you in the form of the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel message. That's the good news. Not us saved going back to heaven, but Christ living in us because now I've been made clean by the blood of Jesus. Let's go a little further. He gives this illustration. He says, a woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she is, is delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. He's giving this comparison. He says, you're going to feel sorrow when you see this great travail that we're going through. But he said, the minute that you see me alive again, it is going to erupt into joy and you're going to very quickly understand and erase the sorrow that you felt at at, at my passing because you're going to be so overwhelmed by the joy that comes after. Verse 22, and you now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart shall rejoice and your joy no man can take from you. And in that day, when that occurs, you shall ask me nothing. Now, please don't get confused about what he's fixing to say, because this is why I'm telling you, you have to go back and attach this to where Jesus has just said that the Holy Spirit is going to be the one who's going to lead you into truth. Because Jesus is saying, you're not going to ask me questions anymore, because I'm not the one who's going to be answering you anymore. Because you're not going to ask me anything. And in that day, you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whatsoever you shall ask, the Father, in my name, he will give it. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask and you receive that your joy may be full. He's saying up to this point, you couldn't ask in my name because I have not yet been glorified. I have not become, I have not been crucified. You could not ask in my name. But he's he's saying on this day when the spirit of truth comes, when you ask, The Father, in my name, it will be brought to you, delivered to you by the work of the Holy Spirit. Even truth, he's saying, it's going to be truth. Again, one of the great failures, strangeness within the Christian church is that we believe in prayer, we're suggesting things to God. That we're asking in suggestions to God. I want to tell you, there's nothing further from the truth. Because we're we're designed to pray the will of the Father. By the work of the Holy Spirit, we're praying in agreement with what the Father is is saying, so that by our prayer, we're releasing through the prayer into the life of somebody else. Peace, joy, healing, whatever it happens to be. We're praying in agreement, releasing into their story the will of the Father. It's not suggestions. Maybe next week, we get into John 17, I've got a bombshell to drop. At least it was dropped on me, so I'm going to drop it on you in a couple of weeks when we get to John chapter 17 about this prayer. Verse 25, these things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time comes when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave this world and go to the Father. 
His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speak thou plainly, and speak of, speaks no proverbs. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour comes, yea, is now come, that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. What's he telling them? He's saying that the moment's coming that's going to be so difficult. The moment is coming when there's going to be such action, such anger, that when it gets directed at me, all of you are going to scatter. Did we see that happen? Absolutely. When he was facing Pilate, when he was facing the accusers, when he was facing everything, he was absolutely alone. But then he comes back with this statement, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You and I, and I share this in things I'm fixing to say you know, but I'm, I'm going to say them kind of as a reminder and I'll do this in closing. We have, by strange teaching, established an unusual priority within church. As a pastor... I'm going to be held in serious accountability for telling you the truth. I have no desire to build a big church. I have no desire to have a large congregation. Not on my list. The American church today has so been altered that somehow pastors have believed that greatness is somehow demonstrated by the number of people sitting in the pews and the number of dollars that are gathered, by the number of programs that are shared with one another, and that has, the conclusion has been that's greatness within God's kingdom. You and I were so desired and so designed to, to be the reality of one thing and only one. You and I were so designed in the heart of God, so designed in his original plan, was that we would become to this world the very reality of God. Christ in us. Where are they going to go to find it? Where are they going to go? The sad commentary for most or for many is that when they walk into the church, they don't get God. They get the best ideas, the best plans, the best programs, the best answers that men and women can come up with. And they walk away because there's no transformation. There's no, there's no reality of God. This is what I wanted to share. This, you've heard me say it several times, and I'm going to say it one more time, and I'm probably not going to hush. I'll probably say it again. The reason I share what I share about Revelation being the basis of the church is because when we read these passages, we're not reading them to gain a concept so that we can learn something else and put it on a notch on our belt saying, I now have learned something about God that I did not know. That kind of knowledge will eventually turn to pride and arrogance and legalism to say, I now have a concept that I can hold at the concept level. Every revelation, every truth gained was designed again to create an encounter so that by that encounter, I, have, I now have an experience with God that makes that concept that I just learned true to me. Every revelation, every concept gained was designed to create an experience with God so that the concept is no longer a concept. It's the practical working of Christ in my life. I shared at the Bible study last night. This was, I absolutely refuse to carry yesterday's hurt or yesterday's sin into my today. And I shared it like last night. That almost sounds like arrogance. But I refuse to bring guilt or shame or regret from yesterday's sin 
that is under the blood of Jesus, I refuse to reach my hand under the blood of Jesus to pull that sin out from where it was already covered and bring it into today and make it real. I refuse to do it. Because what happens when we do it is that what God has in store for us today, the blessing of today, the obedience of today, the plan for today is now greatly hindered because I chose, he didn't, to carry the sin from yesterday into today. I won't carry anger from yesterday into today. I won't carry a bad feeling from yesterday. It's if an incident occurred or a situation occurred, I will not carry it into today. Why? Because the truth that I know about God, the truth that I know about his blood covering my sin, the revelation that he gave about the propitiation of how he dealt with my sin so thoroughly and so completely, the sin I committed yesterday, today, and in the future, that sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. So I absolutely refuse to bring something that he has forgiven, forgotten, separated from me. I refuse to bring it into my day. That has created an encounter and an experience that made the concept of Jesus' blood covering my sins real to me and practical every day in my life so that I don't have to walk in the heaviness of yesterday's mistake. I offer you that kind of freedom in Revelation. I can't offer it. I can tell you the truth. So by that truth, you can be set free and live today without the regret of yesterday or the brokenness of yesterday. God chooses to make us that free. Now, that doesn't give me permission to sin today. As a matter of fact, the reality of the love that it took, the sacrifice that he had to make, the blood that he had to shed to cover my sin compels me not to sin today. I'm free, that free before the Lord. That will transform your day. That will bring a practical reality of experience into your life that teaches you something about the blood of Jesus. And how thoroughly he has dealt with the sin that you and I have committed. Wouldn't it be nice to be surrounded with people who absolutely refuse to carry yesterday's error and the heartache and the heartbreak of it into today so that what we were dealing with was God's plan for us collectively today, unencumbered, unburdened, without the burden of the mistake we made yesterday. You See, that's what Revelation does. That's what the practical teaching of Jesus is trying to say. When he says in the scripture, from now on, when you ask things in my name, I'm not going to be the one who answers. The Holy Spirit is going to lead you into the truth. But when you ask in my name, it assures that you're going to get the answer because you're asking in my name. Because I have now been glorified. I can now stand as an intercessor. I can now stand in the proper place that I couldn't before, but I can now. Jesus is saying, I will stand in that place. And what you ask in my name, he says, it will be done. Because when you ask in my name, you're going to be asking only in agreement with the Father. When you ask in my name, it's a simple recognition that I'm going to pray the will of the Father. So that when I pray the will of the Father in Jesus' name, I'm by that prayer releasing in authority what somebody needs in their life. All of a sudden, prayer becomes real, real important. I'm not suggesting to God. I'm forming something that did not exist, that by this prayer now exists. You stand in agreement with what the Father says. The circumstances may be telling you otherwise, but the reality of what God has established is greater than, than all the circumstances that may surround us. That becomes true. That makes the concept true. We hold so many things at the concept level, but our lives never produce them. Our faith never allows those concepts to become real to us, so we don't even offer them to people because they're concepts. We know a lot about God. Again, you can go to the bookstore and look at the thousands and thousands and thousands of books that tell us that what we know about God, every concept held within every book that came by revelation was designed to create an encounter so that that 
concept becomes real. I want to tell you it's a very different life. It's a joyful one because yesterday's sadness was turned to joy. That was Jesus' promise. It's a different life. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you. This tremendous, as we get to listen in, as you talk so intimately with your disciples, telling them the practical realities of what was fixing to come, giving them the warnings, telling them that you were about to die, telling them that they would see you again, telling them about what the Holy Spirit was about to do, that what they had been asking him, and now the Holy Spirit was going to answer. Practical reality of the Christian church, so largely ignored because we chose to remove the Holy Spirit from the Trinity. Didn't really do it on purpose. We just couldn't figure out how to do with the Holy Spirit what we did with God the Father and God the Son. So we just quit talking about you. But I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you never stopped wooing and loving and compelling us, bringing us home, bringing us to your heart. So Lord, we praise you, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We love you. We praise you. We lift your name. Thanking you, Lord, tonight that you have been our teacher. And let your truth resonate within us. Let it become real. Let it become usable, practical, so that people will begin to witness the reality of the truth we learned by the truth that we now live in Jesus Christ. Amen.